The title of the talk uh, this evening is I Teach Only One Thing. And the Buddha is supposed to have said that he taught one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And I think to myself, it seems to me like he taught many things. He taught uh, dependent origination. He taught the Brahma Viharas. He taught absorption states. He taught many forms of meditation and on and on. So when he made that statement, what was he pointing towards? What, why did he frame it in that way? Uh, because I often think that we miss something very important when he picks teachings that went on for decades and he pulls out this one sentence and he frames it with such uh, emphasis. So I think it's worth exploring this and to look at what this means in terms of what we're doing here and to try to flush out uh, sort of the details of how we're sitting in relationship to this one thing. So this, this one thing, this uh, reframing uh, his teaching around suffering or dissatisfaction, and there are many uh, analogous words to suffering. There's defensiveness or resistance or struggle or conflict or even separation. So this word suffering certainly has a number of nuanced meanings. And uh, so to, not to just think of sort of the uh, traumas of our life as being what he was addressing, but the subtle range of contraction within us. And why would he frame this, this his teaching with such clarity and such a determined phrase? Well, it certainly simplifies it all down, doesn't it? It makes it very clear where this thing is going. In fact, we could put it on a continuum from suffering to non-suffering. So that's the continuum of where our spiritual journey, if we want to assess it, if we want to lay claim to how well we're doing, it should be on this continuum that we're suffering less, that we're contracted less, that we have less of a sense of dissatisfaction in our life. And so it gives us a very clear uh, way of, of and very concise, well-framed teaching. And it gives us a view and an intentionality. My intentionality is that I don't want to suffer. And so it invites in a resolution of heart towards that end. And it also gives us a view. It gives us a way of, of accessing and qualifying whether we're headed in the right direction. Now this is very important. Because many of us practice like many of you today said uh, you're aching and in terrible agony on the floor. And I said, well, why don't you sit in a chair? No, I've got to suffer it out on the floor. Well, 
Is that going from suffering to not suffering? <laughs> you see, are, do we even feel deserving of going in that direction? Many of us have to actually ask ourselves the relevant question of whether we think we're deserving, whether we think kindness is a deserving uh, instrument on the path towards this non-suffering, self-kindness. And not only that, but all along the way, there will be indications, very uh, obvious indications, that we are struggling within this path. We may become ambitious within it. We may become uh, distraught. We may become self-condemning. We may become uh, physically abusive such as the person who demands to sit on the floor. To look at this very concise phrase, from suffering to non-suffering, suddenly makes it very clear whether we're heading dharmic or adharmic, doesn't it? So take that in and use that as the way that you determined whether the course you have set for yourself, whether the ends you seek, the, are, the ends you seek will ever arrive by the means you're using. Okay. If we just looked at that, it's amazing how it sets a clarity for ourselves. When we're in struggling with our emotions, when we're tight or tense because something's arising in us, is that the end of suffering? Do we think our struggles, our annoyances, our conflictual relationships are going to end suffering? You think suffering will ever end itself? Or do we have to just simply move in a different direction from that? So this beautifully concise phrase really takes us on a kind of mantra, gives us a mantra for our practice throughout our, throughout our, our journey, for, year, for as long as the journey might last. Now, I love continuums like that because they're so clearly a pronouncement of a, of a wise direction. But there are other continuums that we could also travel which hold that same reference point from suffering to not suffering, though they are framed differently. And sometimes framing it differently allows us to come into that continuum in a way that suffering and non-suffering does not. So hold on for a minute and I'll give you a few other possibilities for a continuum. But the one thing that suffering and non-suffering continuum does allow is that it doesn't have you uh, skirt around painful issues. It has you go right into pain. You're not going to get to the end of suffering by avoiding suffering, are you? You have to take on the difficult. You have to move yourself right in to where the difficulty lies and so understand the coding of that difficulty, what is occurring within it, so that you can end suffering. This does an important thing. It allows us not to see the path as an excursion around our personal pain or our difficulties. 
or even our psychological neur neurosis. We have to move this thing right through the personal. It's the, the difference between moving this path through the personal and psychological humanism is that we don't stop at the sense of self. We don't stop with a refined and uh, comfortable sense of self because the sense of self itself is a form of suffering. The sense of me being separate from. And so if we're going to make this path and take this path to its absolute conclusion, we have to look at all the ways that we suffer along the way, including the way we hold ourselves in abeyance to the world at large. How we hold ourselves at a distance to what we see, the subject and object relationship of separation, of distance, of you and me. So this is a very nuanced path and it's one which allows, as I mentioned, other continuums to come in that are essentially uh, repetitive of suffering to non-suffering, but they're framed in a little different way so that they might bring our heart into that other frame of reference. So let's look at some of the other possibilities. One that I particularly like, and I'll journey with you a little bit more and flesh out a little further in the course of this evening, is from a noise to stillness. You say, well, how does that suffering from not suffering? Well, you've looked at your mind. <laughs> Tell me what noise feels like to you and how you can't shut the thing up and how it keeps determining your perspective on everything and how no matter how you try, there's this bubble, a trance of thought that we are caught within that we can't see out of and that it determines our relationship to virtually all objects of the world. In fact, it determines the fact that there are objects in the world. From noise to stillness. Stillness being the very embodiment of the ineffable, the ineffable spirit. You see? At, our, at the heart of things doesn't lie noise. At the heart lies stillness. Where there's no contention, there's no struggle in stillness. And so you begin to see that one can journey the path from noise to stillness in exactly the same way that we could journey the path from suffering to not suffering. And we can use other continuums, beautiful continuums, from contraction to love. And many people, in particular, who have Christian backgrounds, like a path of the heart. And this path of the heart from contraction, where we are defensive and in defense of ourselves, uh, and the journey that that can take to an all-embiding embrace of life, which is love, and how that is exactly the same because love is still and there is no suffering within it is exactly the same continuum as suffering from not suffering. Or here's another one that is particularly useful, I think, from unconscious to conscious. Now, you don't think of it as doing that, but that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're lighting 
up areas that we have been, we have ignored, that we have been conditioned to, that we have been uh, habituated within, that we have ignored and de denied within ourselves. And as we take this lamp of attention within ourselves and start shining it, uh, seeing what is there, those areas which have caused our conditioning, which have been habituated, but we have not been able to see, light up. We begin to see those things. And then we can act differently once they are seen. And that's the unconscious. And then it goes to full consciousness, where everything is seen and everything is known within. So there's no blind spots within oneself. Now, whatever continuum we take, and there are many, many others, you don't get out of your personal suffering. You say, oh, I, like the, I like that one with contraction and love. You know? <laughs> I don't feel like I have to go evolve myself, involve myself with pain in that one. No. I'm afraid that they all really cross at the same, all of the different continuums, although they may start off in a different direction, all cross through a person's individuated pain. Because to love oneself, the, at the heart of the reason that we do not love oneself is that we're in contempt of what we see in there. And that's not love. And to have a healing relationship with ourselves means we have to develop a different perspective, a different stance to what it is that's presenting itself. And that's really what love does. That's what awareness is. So we begin to see that these things move in a parallel direction. And in addition, uh, it's real important to see that each of these continuums take us through emptiness, that they all cross at emptiness. Because full embodied consciousness is the recognition that the sense of me is an image believed, an idea believed. And that once it's seen as an idea believed and we are made conscious to that fact, then the sense of selflessness is understood. And that for from unconscious to consciousness is the sense of selflessness is part of that continuum as well. So whatever path we take, we have to be fully intended to take it throughout the duration. And we have to be willing to really bring to bear the nuances within each path so that we aren't trying to escape ourselves. We aren't trying to run from ourselves. We aren't trying to get over ourselves. All products of being unconscious and still suffering. I find uh, it was immensely helpful for me to have a simple gauge like this. And I hope you get a sense of it yourself. You know, we'll he we hear that, and we hear it repeatedly, that the t suffering to non-suffering is the, what the Buddha taught. And many of us have down what it means to suffer. But when it comes to actually using our lives towards eliminating it, we falter. We'll be sitting in our, on our zafus, and we'll hear a Dharma talk such as this one, which gives a, provides a clear indication of 
what we need to do. The person next to us will be wrestling around, wrestling around and uh, making noise. And even while we're listening to talk, inside we're going, why isn't that son of a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> That's not applying <laughs> the principle. Applying the principle. Apply the principle. Don't just know the principle. Apply it again and again and again. I was at the Forest Refuge <laughs> teaching there a few years ago, and there was a woman who had lung cancer, and uh, she was spending some time uh, at the Forest Refuge, uh, and she started cough in the middle of one of our meditations uh, and she uh, got up and left the room and the forest refuge as many of you know is a very very still quiet place to practice and it's really uh, meant for uh, uh, building one's samadhi base so uh, but I got up and I, I went around and followed her out and I said now listen you're welcome to leave the sitting if you're uncomfortable, but don't leave because you think you're making us uncomfortable. We're, a little bit of rub is not a bad thing. Now, a little bit of rub is not a bad thing. And we are so addicted to comfort in this culture that if we just tip a little bit out of balance to what our expectations are, which was today's lunch homework. We, get, we falter, we get, like we get angry inside. We, just aren't, we aren't willing to embrace the continuum of what this practice means. We want ourselves to be comfortable. We want our meditation to be pleasant. Pleasantness doesn't, doesn't invite us it doesn't seem to be the definition of what I got involved in. And yet, the Buddha is saying, I teach one thing only. So we better not deny it, and we better start learning a correct orientation to it if we really want to progress. And I mean not just want to indulge ourselves in meditation, which is how many of us relate to meditation, Oh, I wasn't, why'd you get up? Well, I, I don't know, I just, you know, I was restless. Well, <laughs> I had a really, I hated my, today was a complete waste of time. I was, all the things that Narayan was talking about, you know, t today in terms of the coverings of the heart, the hindrances, those are, I, it's just, you know. Those are, I see them not as, hindrances, but as opportunities, as willing ways to really move into the most difficult aspects of ourselves and march this thing forward. To be able to settle and say to ourselves, come what may, come what may. Whatever my mind does, I am here for it whatever state of mind might arise. That's a different level of resolve within this continuum than fleeing because you happen to be restless or 
sleepy. You see, to, to move the continuum down, at some point there is an earthquake. On each continuum, there's an earthquake. That earthquake is a complete change of paradigms from what we have known life to be. And what most of us do is we march it down until it's, the earth starts shaking, then we march it back. <laughs> and then we'll march it down again. It's, oh my God, there's a tremor, and back we go. But this path requires us shaking at our roots. A complete paradigm shift. Now, what's a paradigm shift look like? A paradigm shift looks like the world very different than we have known it to be. In a book I was reading, they gave the example of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1943 or 1942. He called the car manufacturers into the White House and he said, uh, we need to manufacture 30,000 airplanes and 50,000 tanks or something along those numbers. And the car manufacturer said, oh, I don't think we can do that, sir. Uh, our cars take precedent and uh, we just can't equip our factories to also build tanks and airplanes. And he said, wait a minute, you're not hearing me. There will be no cars built any longer, only airplanes and tanks. And in fact, from 1942 to 1945, no cars were produced in the United States, and they exceeded the number of tanks and airplanes. That's a paradigm shift. That's a reorganization of a completely different way of viewing the world. And that's what's required as we march this continuum forward. We are going to come to places in ourselves which are not that comfortable to see, both when we look at the painful elements of how we held and condemned ourselves all along the way and the ways that we have denied and uh, projected ourselves out into the world, from the world into the world, as well as the deeper uh, often disturbing revelations of what we are and what and how the world comes into being. These are inevitable along the lines if we're going to keep moving this thing in a forward direction. But each supposed quake of the earth actually is a movement towards the other end of the continuum of not suffering of being fully conscious of the resolution of noise and the fullness of heart. And unless we see that there's going to be difficulty and uncomfortableness as part of the movement towards the absolute nature of these things, then we will find ways to keep ourselves disturbed and on the first part of the continuum only. It requires a resolution of heart. So I, what I want to do uh, is I want to take you through what a continuum looks like from beginning to end. This sense of from noise to stillness. What is it like? Why 
Why is it when we sit down, is there so much noise in there? We're not asking ourselves to think, why is this continual chatter going on? And what's it doing for me? You have to ask what value you're getting out of the noise as well as seeing the limitation of the noise. And if you look at what you're getting out of the noise, you're getting a sense of the echo, of echo confirmation. If you stand in a canyon and yell and hear yourself yelling, you exist. It's like a mirror in its image. Your noise represents the fact of your existence. And so we keep ourselves noisy to keep confirming the fact that we exist. And we have done this for so long that now the noise is just neurons firing. We're not even generating it anymore. It's just the noise of the mind constantly, because it's been trained and conditioned to do so, speaking to itself. You're sitting there, you're not asking yourself to think. And so, how did this come to be? Was it, how, how, was it a uh, curse? <laughs> it sure seems like it, doesn't it? I would suggest that probably about two million years ago, if I read my evolution right, we descended out of the trees of Africa onto the plains of Africa. And we were hominids, Hominids, yeah, little male and female-like creatures, uh, somewhere between the ape and ourselves. And we walked out on the plains, and there was a lot of danger out there, lions and tigers, <laughs> jackals and all kinds. So we, and we, what, we, what were we going to do about them? We, we were going to be eaten. We were going to be food unless we did something because we couldn't run very fast, and we weren't very ferocious. So we were pretty much game. So what we had to develop was cunning. We had to develop the ability to do something that the other animals couldn't do. So what we developed was the ability to abstract reality. So now I see a stick, and I think, spear. I can now use this stick as a weapon. Other animals don't seem to have that same ability. So now our cunning allows us to survive. And in doing so, the sense of a survivor starts to arise. And a person who starts conceptualizing life in terms of ideas. Because if now I can look at a stick, I can see a spear, maybe an arrow, a bow, maybe an axle, all sorts of possibilities exist from that single, single uh, object. And I can really work this thing so to my advantage. I can continue to extract and extrapolate upon life, and I can build a real sense of safety and security with myself, with the homes I build and the architectural designs, and all of the different ways that, if you look around, we have done. The problem is that when we have an abstract idea about an object, we have a subjective reality about the thinker who's thinking about the object. And that person 
who is the thinker, now takes on a reality that it never had when you were just descending from the trees onto the plains before you the need, the realization of the need to think about things being different than what the reality of them really were. Also, we aren't really caring, because our safety and security depended upon it, we don't really care about seeing reality as it is, because reality as it is, is dangerous. We're thinking of how we can perceive reality to be an alternative to what it is, so that we can make ourselves safe from that alternative. And so we start now seeing in terms of concepts, right? And we once started, it doesn't turn itself off to just weapons. It lights up the stage. Everything becomes an idea. And so from now on, when I look at anything, it holds a memory trace within my mind as to what I have done and used in it before, as well as the possibilities of further use in the future. And so I have a way of looking at life now that holds possibilities that I had never known before. And this all solidifies the sense of me as the idea, idea maker. Now I've got myself really running on this thing. But what does that require? It requires me being very noisy. Thinking a lot about everything. No longer carrying the disposition of reality because if I just work hard enough, I can overcome that disposition and I can make reality better, safer. So now we've lost track. We have turned our life into a trance, which is no longer governed by the reality of life, the truth of life. It's governed by our, uh, our concepts and abstractions about it, what it could be, not what it is. Now race forward two million years, and you begin to see the nature of fear and desire. Desire and fear are abstractions about reality. What I fear it might become or I desire it to be. And I have two million years of history behind me so that desires is almost, desiring is almost a genetic uh, quick step in my life. I see something and if it's not pleasant enough, my desires will retranslate it into a new possibility. The room's too hot, where's the thermostat? Let me. And as we do this more and more, our comfort, the corridor of our comfort gets more and more refined. And therefore our desires and our fears become more subtle in their intentionality and more nuanced. We become captured by our desire and fear. And we are also very noisy. Because desiring is an extrapolation, an idea about what reality could be. Fear is the expectation that this might turn into something awful. It's not the fact. It's what I believe the fact could be. And so now I am living in a completely mind-made world. It has no 
bearing any longer on the truth of something. Because it's my truth now, it's not the truth. And I, the sense of me, has now become the master builder. The imp- I have all the power. All the power now has gone towards my definition of a new world. A new paradigm has been created where I am king or queen. I mean, think of it. Your thoughts can go anywhere. You can be anything. You want to go to last year's vacation or next year's? You want to remember your first sexual experience? You want to build a fantasy of a relationship with somebody you haven't even met in the room? You can do that. What greater power could you have than that? You just have to stay in the bubble of your trance. That's the requirement. You can't pierce it. You pierce it, the whole thing falls down because it's all built up from my ideas about something. Everything. Everything. Including the sense of you and me. Now wait a second. I don't know if I want to cross that, you see? That's, that's, a, that's a 0.7 on the uh, Richter scale. <laughs> I mean, I can, you know, a little shaking's okay, but that's a whole lot of shaking going on. So what we like to do is sort of nudge it forward. We like to think we're progressing towards, towards something, towards, towards stillness. But we like to keep ourselves noisy enough to be represented <laughs> so that we have a vote, right? So I can say no, right? And what, what stillness doesn't offer me anything. What's it offer me? I can't argue with it. I can't get any traction from it. I can't get any definition around it. It takes all my power away. It leaves me completely vulnerable because I have to deal with reality straight on. I can't make up anything or I'll be noisy. I have to, be, I have to embrace things as they are. What a terrible idea that is. <laughs> now you see where this takes us? So you want to come? What does stillness look like? If you just invite the word in, you can start feeling it operate. If you just start having an intention towards it. See, it requires an intentionality. Suddenly the world becomes much more vast, mysterious, not as well defined, Why? Because I'm not wording everything into place. But something arises out of that quiet 
that is irreplaceable. And that's the heart. That's the closer, see, we have kept ourselves from life by thinking about it. But now that we have dropped the thoughts about it, life comes rushing in. It starts affecting us like a dam that has broken. And we can no longer maintain the sense of separation from it because that was only a device that we used to maintain our thinker. And now there's quiet. But there's also a joining and a connecting. Far richer than any thought I ever could have possibly created. My power has been taken from me. Because I'm no longer separate, I don't care about the power. Being willing to join with the heart resolves that tension. The laws of existence start changing. I told you it was a paradigm shift. No more cars. So what are those laws that start evolving out of themselves? Now we've pierced the bubble. We've moved this continuum past the earthquake. How about the law of time? The amount or gap between what I want life to be and what, I, what life is. The time it will take for me to change life sufficiently so that it will be what I want it to be that time. And the remembrance of what time life used to be and what it could possibly be that time. Time past, time present. And the truth of that. The absolute certainty that there has been a past in me and there will be a future. That time. And distance. All the things I have to do before I can have the satisfaction and completion and complete fulfillment that I yearn for. That distance. How about the law of death? You see, when the Buddha left his castle walls and he sees a corpse, he says, I've got to understand that. And so, but he dies. His body dies. But that isn't the deathless. 
Is there something that cannot be diminished? That deathless. That holds the stillness. And the forms dance within it. The forms dancing within time, modifying, changing, arising, birthing, and decaying. But something else that now is no longer dependent upon the relationship to form for its existence, tying itself to form through thought, it no longer holds form as a separate thing from. That law And what about the law of separation? The certainty we have in our perception that things are distant from myself, that I have problems to resolve. And the way I resolve them is by the force of will, creating more of a sense of me and therefore more of a problem to resolve. Because the problem grows proportional to my own power. And what happens when that power melts what happens when that power releases itself so that there's no more distinction between the problem and oneself? That resolution. Do you still want to come? And we move with it because our heart cannot be denied, because the urgency of our heart cannot be denied. The intention of the heart is to reunite with life, not to stay separate. It doesn't want to stay separate. It sees the fiction of separation. It, does, it wants no more of that. It sees the inevitability of suffering in relationship to that distinction. It sees the pain that has to be the product of thinking, of being noisy, of being unconscious. Because all of this took an enormous amount of denial in order to set it going, to set it moving, to form the bubble in the first place, to establish the trance. And a distance from our heart that is unbearable. Unbearable. And that's why many of us are here. Because we can't, we just, it's just not acceptable anymore to live a life that treats others with indignity. And so we start this continuum. Whatever we do, we start it. And we have the courage and the resolution and all of the essence, heart essence that Narayan talked about yesterday. Those faculties of heart that allow us the courage to move forward. 
and to see what is there. And the willingness to go into our pain, regardless of the consequences of what I might see. And the willingness to move through the personal. And to know it for the first time. Until there is resolution. The most difficult emotional responses one can imagine. The seeds of our foundation of self. And believe me, the universe will give you an opportunity to see the worst in you. Assured. Count on it. And it's with enormous humility. It's the only way we can travel is with this enormous humility. And that's what this mudra is about. Why do you bow your head, someone asked me. How can you not bow your head? May we all know that. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? So how do you sit? Is there a place for everything in your sitting? Or just the comfortable? What continuum are you on? From pleasure to greater pleasure? Or one that will take you through yourself. Let us know our way. If we don't choose to travel it, at least we'll be honest and conscious to that fact. But let's not pretend. That's the worst. I teach only one thing, said the Buddha. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.